and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Salim Ramji, BlackRock Senior Managing Director and Global Head of iShares and Index Investments. Founded in 1988, BlackRock is a global investment management firm and the world's largest asset manager with almost $9 trillion in AUM. And iShares is one of the largest ETF providers with almost $3 trillion in AUM. In this episode, we discuss Salim's exciting career from microfinance in the mountains of Pakistan to the top of Wall Street in New York City, joining BlackRock and why he actually rejected Larry Fink's offer to join the firm, the power of ETFs and index investing, and why he considers indexing to be one of the original fintech innovations, iShares and its incredible reach helping over 100 million investors from around the world, the rise of robo-advisors and why asset managers should implement guardrails to offer investment products and capabilities that are good for the long term, the rapid acceleration of ESG, environmental, social, and governance ETFs, and why BlackRock considers climate risks are investment risks that should be taken very seriously, leadership lessons and the power of leading through influence, collaboration, and by forging alliances, and a whole lot more. I hope you enjoy this amazing conversation with Salim Ramji. Salim, thank you for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Could not be more excited to have you join us, uh, all the way from New York, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, and in the office, in the office in New York which I'm very excited to report. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm actually in New York as well, so we might be a few blocks away. <laughs> right. Uh, that, that's great. You know, we, we've done um, close to 200 interviews in the last year, and I think only one was in person. You know? Wow. Uh, but it, it actually works much better this way. Yeah. No, it's, look, it's, it's been a long, tough year for many people, and, and at least it's uh, a great flexibility to be able to kind of do this virtually and even just do what we're doing kind of virtually. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and maybe on, on that note, we can start by hearing about your background, right? And leading all the way to your, your current role. So yeah, kind of take us through your journey. Like where I started? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My first job, Miguel, was not, I don't even know if it's on my resume anymore, but I, I actually started out in microfinance. And my first job, which I did for a year after college, was in the north of Pakistan, where I would give out small loans to emerging women's enterprises or small farmers, like loans like for the equivalent of $2 or $3. And we'd take in savings. And it could be the equivalent of a dollar or $2 or tiny amounts of savings. And that's what I did up in the mountains in the very north of Pakistan. And it was, uh, I, I wanted to be a development economist. That's uh, what I started out wanting to do. And I was hoping to get some field experience. It took, me, it took me on a wandering path after that. I became a corporate lawyer for a few years and joined McKinsey & Company for a number of years. And over the past uh, several years, I've been part of BlackRock. And, you know, one of the things just as I was kind of 
just reflecting on your question, uh, part of the journey in each of the firms that I've been part of, like whether you go back to this little microfinance kind of savings organization to iShares today, is really being tuned into what's the point of what you're doing and what's the purpose of what you're doing. And I think what attracted me 25, 30 years ago in that first job was I connected with the purpose of it and helping kind of people save was a really important purpose that I found some degree of fulfillment in. And when I think about the great job that I have right now, the thing that gets me excited every day is kind of something similar, which is like you make investing easier and more affordable for people. And, and there's a really good point to that. And so I don't know if that's a journey or it's kind of like sort of what a thread, I'm trying to find a common thread between the, you know, the north of Pakistan to midtown Manhattan and New York uh, and lots of places like London and Hong Kong in between. But if that's a thread, that's probably it, which is just connecting to the point of what you're doing and the purpose of what you're doing. It's certainly been an influence for me, whether it's subconsciously or, or even more now, kind of at the front of my mind. No, that, that's really incredible. And then I imagine you learned a ton during that year back in the mountains of, of Pakistan. Is that where, where your family's from? Is that where you're from? Is that why you were in, in Pakistan? No, my, uh, uh, not at all, actually. And, and uh, 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 my background's not quite as diverse as yours, and I was reading up on yours as well. But I, I was born in, in Tanzania. Uh, and then my family left when I was at about a year old and I lived in and grew up in Canada. And then I kind of went to school and college in England and and then outside of the north of Pakistan uh, in this small town called Gilgit, I, I then worked in London and Hong Kong and New York uh, and other places. So I'm kind of from all over the place. I, I can relate to that. You're, you're yeah. a citizen of the world. <laughs> but New York is home because New York is full of people who are from all over the place. And it doesn't matter where you're from, right? Yeah, exactly. I was I was reading Salim that you actually rejected the first offer to join BlackRock directly from Larry Fink. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, it is. I was actually joking with Larry about it uh, a few days ago, and we we're remembering it. It's a uh, you know I'd worked with BlackRock back when I was an advisor, actually going back to even iShares fifteen years ago or so, and Larry had. Um, very graciously invited me to join the firm uh, about eight years ago. And I gave it a little bit of thought and ultimately declined the offer. And uh, And he was very good about it. A couple of weeks later, I was giving a speech, uh, actually at a BlackRock conference. And uh, one of Larry's partners at the time, a guy named Charlie Halleck, who was really the, I think he was the first employee of BlackRock, but he was really kind of like one of the founders. He, he basically founded the whole Aladdin, the technology aspect of BlackRock. He came up to me and he said, I heard you turned us down. And I said, yeah. And, and I expected this very gracious, you know, uh, great, let's stay in touch. And he, he really then asked me why I was such an idiot. I actually used slightly more colorful language than that, but I'll let you fill in the blanks. <laughs> and then he sat me down for an hour and explained the answer to his own question. And uh, he made some compelling arguments. And, and kind of by the end of that conversation, I realized I'd made a mistake. And uh, true to form, Larry called me a couple hours later, and, uh, and, and then we had a handshake agreement, and, and the rest is history. I've never looked back. But sometimes, you, you, you know, it's, it's funny. In any career decision, you sometimes you know it's a pivotal point, 
sometimes you make the right decision, sometimes you make the wrong decision. In this case, I got to do a redo, uh, which I'm really glad uh, that I uh, ran into Charlie that day. And and so since you joined, you've had a number of roles, right? But maybe you can talk about your your current job and maybe talk a bit about iShares. Yeah. So iShares, it's our ETF and our index investing business. And it, it represents a large portion of the assets of the firm, about two thirds of the assets of the firm. But it's a, you know, I was hoping, uh, Miguel, I could say it's the original fintech. Uh, it was 50 years ago that the first index investing fund <laughs> was started by. It, it is the fintech podcast after all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think the ATM might have beat, uh, beat indexation by a year or two. But, you know, the index investing discipline, if you will, was started 50 years ago, started by a predecessor firm of ours, Wells Fargo. And when you look at Wells Fargo's annual report from 1971, it describes this new offering as investment technology. And and really, as this has evolved over the years, because um, our first mandate was in 1971 for the Samsonite Luggage Corporation, it was a $6 million mandate. We've since grown the indexing and the ETF business over the years to about a million times that number. And so it's done quite well over five decades. But at its heart, it still is a technology. And I think the ETF aspect, which is um, uh, relatively newer, it's about 20 years uh, ago that iShares had started, uh, started up about 21 years ago. That at its core is also a technology because what it's really doing is that it's taking underlying securities, putting them into a bundle, making it really transparent, making it really accessible, and making it really available to millions and millions of people. And so the really important thing to me, obviously the asset number is important, but the really important thing to me is how many people are using our ETFs. And so we've got 22 million people in the United States alone who use iShares. And if you look in different parts of the world, you know, if you take an example like in Germany, there are a million people every month who are putting you know, an average 100 euros into their ETF-oriented savings plans that are um, composed of iShares. And when you look across the whole index investing capabilities of BlackRock, it's helping over 100 million people all around the world with their retirement plans, with ETFs as part of a model portfolio, with a whole range of things that I think are helping make investing easier and more accessible for, for a lot of people. So, you know, there are different ways to look at the business. Obviously, there's growth and there's revenues and there's assets. But the thing that I get the most excited about is the 100 million people or the 22 million people in the United States who are using ETFs or the 1 million Germans who are adding to their savings plans. Because I think there's incredible room for that to grow and expand uh, and just to help people save better and help people invest better. That, that's incredible. Uh, those are big numbers. Uh, but at the same time, it's just getting started, right? I mean, out of the yeah. total invested uh, capital in public markets, what is it? It's single digits percentage that is in ETFs, right? Is one to two percent? If you take, yeah, that's the remarkable part about it. Because even five decades later, if you take all the ETFs, not just ours, but everybody else's, all the index funds, not just ours, but everyone else's, and all the kind of the underlying index mandates, it's 10%. And I think that 
I'd say beyond that, just the number of people, it's that number, that 10% penetration into the total pool of stocks and bonds that I think just makes me feel like there's decades and decades of growth ahead. You know, it's morphing and it's changing, and there are all different ways that people are using ETFs today that uh, has changed relative to back in, in 2000 and 2001 and 2002 when, you know, we first got started in ETF kind of business. But there's incredible room to expand and innovate uh, in areas that we hadn't been in before uh, in any meaningful way. And so how does all of this magic happen? Right. Because there is quite a bit of financial engineering and technology being applied behind the scenes. The, yeah. Like, I'm guessing you guys invest a lot in, in technology, of course, but you know, maybe talk about the, the financial engineering behind tracking an index. No, it's an incredible thing to behold. And, and you know, I got to tell you, a few years ago, um, I used to run our uh, business within BlackRock that served um, wealth managers. Um, yeah, a bunch of the self-directed platforms, as well as the big private banks and wealth management firms. And I represented and sold iShares as part of that, alongside kind of all of our uh, other investment capabilities. But I probably didn't have a great appreciation at the time as to how it's made and all the aspects that go into how ETFs and indexation are made. And it was around that time that we um, changed the titles of the people who were running the money when we call them portfolio engineers rather than portfolio managers. And I think the engineering term is totally apt because ultimately what they're doing is that they're, they're managing trillions of dollars for millions or you know, over 100 million people. They're managing thousands of different indices and they're doing so with incredible precision every single moment of every single day. And that requires huge investments in technology. All of this runs on Aladdin, kind of that platform that Charlie Halleck had started you know, back at the founding of BlackRock. All of it runs with incredible data science, and all of it runs with people who are trained as engineers um, just in, in how portfolios are run at this scale. And it's actually once I was able to, once I'd taken over this responsibility and also became responsible for like not just selling it, but how it's made and the, and the engineering which went into it, it's an incredible thing to behold. And I think it's perhaps underappreciated. It was certainly underappreciated by me a few years ago. But, you know, this time last year, I think people really, really understood the quality of the engineering that went into it. You know, because this time last year, beyond all the um, healthcare and societal things that the whole world was going through, indexation and ETFs were coming under the most severe stress that they've ever come under in their history. And I think really good engineering and really good performance, which happily we delivered through kind of all the stresses of February and March and April and last year, really, really was a distinguishing factor. And I think that that not just gave me appreciation for it, but gave, I think, all of our clients and and kind of many broader players in the ecosystem a deeper understanding of what really good product engineering meant and why it's important uh, in ETFs and in indexing. You mentioned last year, of course, and we are over a year into a, a global pandemic. Uh, you know, it's affected every single person in the world. Everybody. Uh, how has it affected you and your team? I'm sure you've had challenges along the way. Yeah, look, we've had we've had challenges, but I think we've had 
some relatively good fortune as well. And I think that the one of the amazing things is that our whole team, you know, we were distributed across 16,000 offices <laughs> across BlackRock uh, a year ago and everything worked and everything actually worked um, pretty well. And I think that that we were able to do that was, I think, a remarkable feat of technology and uh, engineering and and good fortune and, and a whole series of things. I think that, uh, you know, for our teams, that we were able to continue to be able to do our jobs remotely, I think, was a great benefit as well, because at least, you know, during kind of the worst parts of the pandemic, it enabled people to be home and be safe and, and be out of harm's way in ways that other professions or other people around the world didn't have that particular privilege. And so, you know, all of those were really good things because it enabled us to keep our promises to our clients. It enabled us to kind of, generally speaking, stay safe and healthy. I think the stresses that it puts on the system are natural. And I think many companies are going through it, which is, you know, we had, we had and still have excellent teamwork, but that teamwork is often built on many years of all of us working together and trust and relationships that we've been able to draw on in the past year or so that we've been remote. But it becomes harder if you're a new analyst or just out of business school or just joining the firm and you're joining into a fully remote kind of aspect because it's just harder to build those relationships. And so I'm hopeful that as more people get vaccinated and as it becomes safer to come in, that over the course of this year, more and more people are able to come in not because everything isn't working, it's actually working. But I just think that that cultural fabric and that teamwork is built on trust and relationships. And we've had to draw down on those, on those relationships uh, to keep everything running, but we just need to replenish it. And we just need to you know, be able to have fun together and be able to look each other in the eye in 3D, uh, not just in 2D. And that's what I'm looking forward to at least from a work perspective, as it becomes safer and and as people feel more secure kind of coming back into the office. And now, Salim, you, you mentioned that something that's very important for you is democratizing access to financial markets, to financial products, right? And and you are definitely at iShares at BlackRock, you're doing that. But you also have to be aware that, and I know you are, uh, that there are a lot of up-and-coming fintechs trying to do the same, right? And yeah. some of them are, are getting uh, very significant traction, right? How, how closely do you, do you track emerging robo-advisors and, and what are your thoughts around the industry? Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there, there are many different providers all over the world uh, uh, many of whom have been on your on your podcast, <laughs> yeah. uh, and I listened with a great deal of interest. I think it's I think generally speaking, it's marvelous. Uh, and I say generally speaking because I, I think underneath it, what they're trying to do is make investing easier and more accessible and cheaper and and the like, which is I think the similar type of thing that we're trying to do. We don't have a direct to consumer business at BlackRock. And so we will work with robo-advisors. We will work with big, large, uh, kind of multi-trillion dollar platforms like, you know, the Fidelities of the world. And we'd also, we'd also work with the upstarts, right? Like the, you know, when I cited some of the, the numbers around German savings plans, like the self-directed market in Germany and in many parts of Europe 
is really taking off. And they're all our partners kind of around it. And they're our partners both because there's a commonality of mission around making investing easier and more affordable. And we don't do what they do and they don't do what we do. And so in there is the, the basis of a beautiful partnership. So not only do we follow it and track it, but we're not the least bit threatened by it because actually they're enabling another part of the system that we think is really important to do so. Uh, the reason I said generally and not absolutely in answer to your question is that, you know, sometimes you can have too much of a good thing too. And I think that, you know, our essential focus is not to have the fad of the day or the flavor of the day. Our essential focus is that we want to create investment products and investment capabilities that are really good for the long term. So that one year from now, five years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, you'll be happy that you have this in your portfolio. And I think sometimes when you completely eliminate kind of all barriers, including you know regulatory or other guardrails that are important to put in place that people are investing in a, uh, in a way that they understand and in a way that's kind of in their long-term interest, that can sometimes lead to unintended consequences. But I think that that's natural with any innovation. I think the general trend line which has been giving more investors access to investments has been a really good one all around the world. And generally when barriers come down to accessing those investments and ETFs being kind of a, an example that we pay particular attention to, it's good for investors and it's good for us. And, and we think that's a really, really important development um, all across the world. So Salim, um, you mentioned tuning in to some of our past episodes. First of all, Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and then second of all, you might have heard that, you know, ESG has been a constant topic Absolutely. over the last year, right? And particularly we've had two names stand out because they're leading different organizations. So Doc Peterson, CEO of SP Global, yep. he talked about it. Yep. And then we had David Vélez, who's the founder and CEO of Newbank. He also talked about it, right? So like the, the, the booming startup and the established company, S&P Global, both of them talking about the, the importance of ESG, right? Um, has this been a, an important topic for you over the last few years? It has. And, 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 and I think it's, you know, within BlackRock, it's almost a combination of both of those. Uh, we obviously are an established firm. <laughs> and at the same time, I think as it relates to ESG, we've been approaching it like a startup. And, and if I just give you an example from uh, just from an iShares point of view, you know, if you go back two, three years ago, we probably had about 20 or so ETFs that were ESG in their focus. We managed in those ETFs just around $7 billion. But it was really a niche offering that we had in the context of our broader iShares business, mostly catering to certain clients that wanted this particular niche. It wasn't a huge or um, significant part of our business or even of our growth story. And I think two things changed. The first was that across our investment teams uh, and, um, and our own research teams, we really started to understand climate risks, for example, as investment risks. And we started to understand the magnitude of the changes that that could have to clients' long-term portfolios if they were exposed to risks that they didn't understand. And for our firm, which was built on a foundation of risk management, understanding these risks is central to good long-term investing was really, really important. 
And we started speaking with a louder voice about that. And as we spoke with a louder voice uh, kind of around that, what we found is that many of our clients all around the world had been yearning for investment firms and for other firms to be able to help them make the transition. I mean, they knew intuitively that climate risks were investment risks. They understood intuitively some of the case that we were making empirically, but their big question was how. And I think that's where ETFs have been playing a really important role because what we were able to do over the course of like a couple of years, and this is sort of the startup aspect to it, is we were able to expand our lineup from 20 products to over 150. And when you look at our total assets today, they're something like 20 times the level that they were just two years ago. And so it's just you know well over $140 billion in our iShares ETFs and um, index funds. And so that's where you, where you really get the combination of these things happening, where if you can be nimble and forceful to see and be able to help accelerate an important trend like ESG, and you can use the scale that things like Aladdin, things like our ETF business give us to be able to rapidly expand, but still maintain your quality and your technology and all the things that make the engineering of iShares really good intact. That's, I think, where you can have something really important happening. And so we've been public that, that, that we expect by the end of the decade, we're going to be managing a trillion dollars in uh, sustainable investments. And, and we want to help clients make the transition towards sustainable more than more than any other firm. And so it sort of captures the two uh, the two kind of aspects, which is like you need an established company to help make these shifts and you need to have the nimbleness of a startup or the nimbleness of a uh, of a kind of perhaps more entrepreneurial aspect. And I think um, yeah, one of the great benefits of BlackRock is you can kind of have both. And I was also reading, you tell me if this is correct or not, your best-selling thematic ETF last year was a clean energy ETF. Yeah. And it's a, you know, this one was um, the underlying indices are um, uh, run by Doug's firm, by S&P. And this fund had launched probably over just over 10 years ago. So we've had, we've had a couple of these funds around. They didn't gather a lot of assets for their first five, 10 years. I mean, they gathered some, but it wasn't massive. And I think we started to see some real changes happening just over a year ago, in part because of their performance. And there was an upgrading of the performance expectations around and, and results of clean energy firms. And in part because more and more investors wanted to have access to clean energy investments in their portfolio. We've seen those, you know, those two funds, and we've got one based in the United States and one based in, in Europe, really you know, grow from being under a billion dollars to well over 10 in the course of a year. And again, that's really quite extraordinary growth. Even within a high growth business like iShares, that's pretty like we, you don't see that a lot. And I think it speaks to the demand out there amongst investors to have access to things like clean energy or things like low carbon investments or even just broader ESG um, oriented investments. Clearly, ESG, a big trend for, for you and, and the market. How about other global trends that you've been seeing and that, that you're excited about? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's another one which I'm really excited about. It's a little bit in the weeds. Uh, and I think if you stretch the definition of fintech a little bit, I think it fits within the fintech definition. But it's really what's happening in the bond market. And 
you know, our bond ETFs, like if you go back in history, the first ETFs were launched about 30 years ago, not by us, but by another firm. We got started in iShares about 20 years ago and about 18, about just over 20 years ago. And about 18 years ago, we launched the first bond ETF. And uh, that's a business that's grown for us. But the reason I relate it back to a technology is when you look at what the bond market itself and how it operates. The bond market, the underlying bond market, is very antiquated. The levels of digitization are extremely low, even relative to equities. It's pretty opaque. Things aren't, are typically not negotiated on exchange. They're negotiated over the counter. So just you know, two people negotiating a particular price. It tends to be, when you look underneath it, quite expensive to transact, uh, in part because of the opaque and non-digital nature of it. And I think what ETFs are really doing is that they're completely modernizing how the bond market itself operates. And this is like a $100 trillion market. I mean, this is a massive market all across the world. ETFs are like 1% or 2% of that total market, 1.6%. But what they're doing is that they're bringing transactions on exchange. So now you can see them. And it's not just you and me transacting. It's us, like through a exchange. Pricing is becoming super transparent. As it becomes transparent, it's becoming a lot cheaper to transact in the ETF than in the underlying bond market itself. And it's adding liquidity. And so you get more buyers and sellers around the ETFs than had otherwise been the case. And so the exciting thing about it, even though it's kind of, it's not, you know, it's not as uh, clear as like a robo-advisor or a self-directed kind of offering, because that's very intuitive to you and me as just, you know, investors. But what's really exciting about what's happening to the bond market, it's the application of this concept of ETFs as a technology, changing the way in which a whole ecosystem is working. And I find it really exciting. <laughs> Even more importantly, uh, the two of our founders of our firm, uh, our CEO and our president, who got their start in the bond market 35 years ago, are really excited about this as a modernizing force. And I think it's going to enable more and more of this democratization that's been happening in equities to happen in bonds as well. Because even if you think about it, as an individual investor, like it's really hard to buy a bond. It's really easy to buy a bond ETF. And the ability to wrap what's otherwise a hard-to-access set of securities and make it easier and transparent, cheaper, and the like is really just a continuation of this mission, I think, that we've been on since 1971. And certainly we've been on for the past 20-plus uh, years since, um, since iShares was formed. That's fascinating. And, and it's adding more diversification to the ETF space in general. Yeah. Right? Yeah, because every – I mean, we – we just within iShares, we run over 1,100 ETFs across the world. Some of them are active ETFs. Uh, actually, just a couple of weeks ago, we launched the largest active ETF launch in history, in US history, and it was an active ETF. It was focused on low carbon transition readiness. But we also run you know, 900 different indices uh, all across the world. And so you can get all sorts of different ways in which to customize your portfolio, even just using ETFs. If you want to add in mutual funds or securities or other things, great. But that just gives clients lots of ways to customize if they wanted to customize towards certain countries or towards ESG or towards certain kind of parts of the market, like the bond market or the like. And I think that that's part of the richness of what a lot of the innovation of the past five years has been about. 
Salim, so you run a large organization, right? I wonder if you could share your approach to leadership, right? We, we talk to a lot of founders and some of them are early in their journey. Others are much later and they're already established unicorns. And, and then we also talk to corporate leaders like yourself. And I think there's a lot to learn from management and leadership style. Yeah. So maybe I'll give you one piece of context about BlackRock, and then I'll give you one piece, one or two pieces about me. The one piece about BlackRock, which always really appealed to me, uh, appealed to me back when I was advising BlackRock, certainly appealed to me now that I've understood and been part of BlackRock for the past several years, is this notion of one firm. And lots of companies will say that. But I think that the reason why I think we really operate like that is because there is an ethos which was put in this firm, I think, from its founding, when eight partners founded the firm, of that it should operate as a highly matrix partnership. And so as a result, if you want to do anything great within this firm or ambitious within this firm, it's impossible to do it within your own business unit. You got to partner with lots of people. You got to partner with the team in Aladdin. You got to partner with our active investors. You got to partner with our marketing teams. And so it's it's probably amongst the most matrix large corporations that I've seen, but it works because I think that there's a magic to partnership. And when things are working together, you can actually achieve massive things <laughs> at a scale that you couldn't if it was just a small firm or if it was a much more siloed firm. And, you know, in speaking to a number of our founders and, and the like, that was part of the original design. Like that's they, they wanted to maintain that ethos of eight people in a room, even though we're over 16,000 people and <laughs> often still in 16,000 rooms. For me, that really appealed because the way that I try and lead is through influence and through collaboration and through forging alliances. And you know, I spent my professional life after my microfinance stint in private partnerships. And so the idea of being able to form alliances with people and build bridges with people, be they your internal partners or be they your clients or be they other participants in the system, kind of came naturally. And so the, the real essence of it is don't tell someone what to do and don't even uh, solve the problem for them so that they will discover what they need to do. But how do you understand what motivates them? How do you understand how they can get excited about a mission and areas of joint success? And how do you influence them around that path? That's probably the closest articulation of kind of what I'm trying to do as a leader and get people really invested that it's kind of less about your success or my success, but it's about our success. And I think in being able to do that, we can actually achieve something bigger than any one of us can do. And I think it's really, really important, especially in this firm, to be able to achieve something. You can only achieve really good things through multiple layers of partnership all across the firm and most importantly with our clients. Fascinating stuff. Well, Salim, before we let you go, we always like yeah. to ask all of our guests uh, a little bit about their background and their personal side, right? Sure. Well, maybe you can tell us about some of the, the hobbies that you enjoy the most outside of BlackRock. Um, so BlackRock consumes a lot of my hobby time because <laughs> it becomes an all-consuming kind of passion and, and element. But what I've tried to do, uh, uh, back in college, I tried rowing. 
I was terrible at it. And after I, I went to uh, college in England and uh, after my second term, they didn't invite me back to the boat because I think it, 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 at, at Wharton, they'd probably just kick you off the boat. But in England, they, they wouldn't invite you back. <laughs> and so what I what I did, scarred by that experience 30 plus years ago is this summer, I've got a 15 year old son and he's actually pretty good at it. I was pretty useless at it, but we both kind of took that up and we both are taking lessons together. And it's and it's kind of a nice way to be socially distant, to be outdoors, spend a little bit of time with your with my kids. And and so that's a, I, I don't know if it's a long-term hobby, but it's something that at least I've, uh, I've managed to uh, wash off my old shame of being kicked off the boat 30 years ago and, and, and achieve basic competence. The next generation is always improving, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> well, you know, in, in Philadelphia, there's this row of boathouses and then a couple of those are Penn. Yeah. So, you know, now you are a friend of Wharton, and pen. So when you stop by in person, you know, you gotta, you gotta show up. And, and, Absolutely. <laughs> and you can even join some, one of the rowing boats. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Salim, it's been a, a real pleasure. Uh, I learned a ton. I, I'm, I'm, yeah, no, thank you. I've, I've learned a ton from listening to your podcast. So like the, it's a great service you're providing and I, and it's been even just in, in preparation for this, I, I listened to a number of them. I think it's a great uh, series you've got going. So congratulations. Thank you so much. That means a lot. And, you know, I, uh, I'm sure we'll be crossing paths again, but thank you. Again. I hope so. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Miguel. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.